Placebos, long considered to be inert substances, have often been used in research as comparators for active treatments, which may thereby be proved ineffective or harmful. But growing knowledge about placebos and placebo responses is opening up new opportunities for their use in both research and clinical medicine. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Ted Kaptrick, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and director of the Program in Placebo Studies and the Therapeutic Encounter at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Professor Kaptrick has co-authored a perspective article about the role of placebo in medicine. Professor Kaptrick, how did physicians and researchers interpret the placebo effect when it was first identified, and how has that understanding changed over time? I'm a historian part-time, so it's a long question and complex. The placebo effect, the word placebo effect, really is post-World War II with the introduction and acceptance and adoption of the placebo-controlled randomized controlled trial as the pinnacle of evidence in medicine. And what happens is that people start noticing that people in the placebo arm, the placebo comparator, are getting better. And a very important article popularizes that new kind of insight with Henry Beecher published in the Christmas issue of JAMA, 1955, to something called, the article's called The Powerful Placebo. And people had used placebos before World War II very often to manage difficult patients. That's, that's a 200-year history previous to World War II. And what people thought the placebo bread pills, sugar pills, were there to dupe a patient that was really neurotic or inappropriately saying things or just difficult to manage. But no one ever thought that giving someone a bread pill, a sugar pill, could actually change the course of illness. It might make a person a little less anxious. But the idea that a placebo pill could change the course of illness is really post-World War II and really gets adopted in the Kefauver Amendment to the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1964, which is implemented in 1968, where the FDA says in order for a drug to come to market, the ideal is two placebo-controlled trials that demonstrate the drug is more effective than placebo. So then you get this idea that there is a placebo effect, but in fact... People don't care about it because really what people care about and understandably care about is there's a plethora of new, potentially very exciting new drugs coming out. And what captures the imagination of the pharmaceutical industry and the medical community is that we now have a methodology to show a drug is effective or has efficacy. And what happens is for a long time, people talk about placebo effects, but it's really usually a framed in the context. It's a nuisance. It's an artifact. It's, maybe it's just regression to the mean. And really, we need to move and get better and more effective drugs. And the idea of placebo effects having intrinsic interest or intrinsic value is not a very common assumption in most of the medical discourse in the last century. You note in your article that evidence to date suggests that placebos don't alter the underlying pathophysiology of disease. Instead, they address subjective symptoms, pain, fatigue. What kinds of symptoms are particularly responsive to placebos? And are there some that just aren't affected by placebos at all? Well, to start the second part of your question, there's no evidence. There's a nice meta-analysis produced by the Journal of National Cancer Institute in 2003, which clearly showed, I think, that there's no evidence that placebo treatment shrinks tumors. There's no evidence that I've seen where cholesterol is reduced by placebo treatments. Now, randomized controlled trials People do sometimes lower their cholesterol in the placebo arm, but I think there's no evidence that that is more than spontaneous remission or the waxing and waning of that symptomatology. 
and I think the evidence is most clear for where placebos have efficacy is top-down brain-to-the-periphery situations where the brain can actually modify symptomatology. And we're talking about pain, anxiety, nausea, dizziness, fatigue, things like that, I think primarily. We're also talking about symptoms that are really sometimes necessary for survival. Pain is something we need in order to survive. Nausea, if we don't get nausea, we might take poisonous medicines. If we don't get fatigue, we might not rest. If we don't get depressed, we might not change our situation. If we don't have anxiety, we miss important signals in the environment. The body has the ability to regulate those symptomatologies, and the placebo effect is about those kinds of pathways in the body. You say in your article that researchers are beginning to identify genetic signatures of patients who are likely to respond to placebos. So how do you see that affecting research and the use of the placebo effect in the future? Our team published an article last May this year on the question, is there a genetic signature for placebo effects? And we coined the term placebo. I think what we did was really an infancy step. It's very, very early stages of proof of principle. It seems from what we found in literature and our own research that people at this point have been able to identify genes that regulate the endogenous opioid system, the endogenous cannabinoid system, and especially the endogenous dopamine system. Those genes can seem, depending on what kind of polymorphism are in those genes, they can modify people's susceptibility to the ritual therapy, the symbols of therapy. I think that it's going to be a much more complex story than this publication we did last month. But I think the publication suggests we found 11 candidate genes that were potentially involved with placebo pathways. But actually, the story is going to be much more complicated. I think what we did was say, there's something going on here. Something needs to be investigated. And let's move forward. The same factors that promote placebo effects can also cause adverse consequences, so-called nocebo effects. Have we made any progress in developing strategies to avoid inducing those adverse effects? Well, first let me address the first part of your question. There are probably overlapping mechanisms of placebo and nocebo. From the neuroimaging work and from the neurotransmitter work, we know that there's some overlapping of negative, positive effects to the rituals of medicine and to negative effects to the ritual of medicine. And for instance, the hippocampus is involved with nocebo responses, but it's not involved, it seems, with placebo responses. There's a lot of experiments on that. So the mechanisms are overlapping. It's, nocebo is really related to, it seems, to the anticipation of negative side effects, or sometimes very importantly, the misattribution to what are normal background symptoms, like I get a headache, I get a little bit of digestive upsetness, I'm really tired, oh my God, I didn't sleep that well. When you're in a clinical situation we have a new therapy, either a trial or a clinical practice, patients anticipate or can misattribute negative effects. I think that the work of people like Arthur Barsky at the Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School suggests that, in fact, many people who are put on new therapeutic regimens, new drugs, new procedures, sometimes the adverse effects they report are actually nocebo effects, meaning effects that are really placebo kind of effects. We know in randomized controlled trials, the number of people who drop out of trials because they say they've gotten unacceptable levels of side effects, and they unknowingly they were on placebo, is actually the estimates are between 4% to 25% of people have dropped out of randomized controlled trials because of adverse effects caused by placebo or nocebo. 
I think the question of how to address that is really a complicated question clinically. I think there's beginnings of in the medical journals, especially bioethics journals. How do we disclose information to patients with full transparency, meaning informed consent and respect for person, in a way that doesn't trigger some unnecessary or unlikely side effects that wouldn't have happened if we had not told them the potential for headaches and dry mouth, insomnia? I'm not talking about effects that are really concrete, dose-related effects that are very specific to drugs. The general background noise. How do we talk about side effects? I think that's a really important question. And how do we balance transparency with benevolence? I think clearly we're emphasizing transparency, at least in terms of the legal structure of medicine. I think that's what we accept as important. But we need to start thinking, what's the best way of also including beneficence? What do patients want? What do patients want to know? There are lots of strategies that people have developed on this, at telling people that they're not going to tell them all the upfront saying, I'm not going to give you all the side effects because some of them are minor and you might even get some. Let me just tell you the real critical side effects. You need to know you can't drive with this medication or something like that. It's sedative or it causes bleeding. That's a real important thing to know. Or it's a very complicated issue, but all I can say is we need more discussion and more research, empirical research, on what are the best ways of informing patients without increasing the negative adverse effects caused by people's imagination, people's worries, people's response to symbols and rituals, and anticipation of negative consequences. In another kind of transparency, there have recently been pilot studies of open-label placebo. How effective would you expect placebos to be in those circumstances as opposed to the usual blinded treatment? Those are really preliminary studies, and our team is responsible for several of those preliminary studies. I think that the usual wisdom is that you need to conceal from the patient that they're taking a placebo pill in order for placebo to work. You have to deceive the patient and clinically essentially somehow pretend or give the impression or actually lie and say it's an active drug. The reason that our team started doing these experiments where we gave people placebos and told them it was placebos, for the beginning we just said we don't know if it'll work or not, and I said this, now we say there's preliminary evidence that it might work. The reason we did that is we wanted to see if we could directly harness placebo effects without deception, without concealment, in a way that would be clinically useful. I think what situations this might be useful are very limited. They would be really very restricted, I think, to symptomatology that has to do with self-appraisal and subjective assessment, things like pain, fatigue, depression, anxiety. But a lot more research has to be done on it, and it's still in a preliminary stage. I wouldn't expect this kind of placebo administration to work where placebos don't work in general. I think they would only work in situations where placebos actually seem to have effect, which are really, I think, primarily subjective symptoms. And more research has to be done on the question of open-label honest placebos. But there is some evidence, I think it's pilot, it's preliminary, that this is worth pursuing. Finally, how can individual physicians make use of our current knowledge of placebo effects in their everyday practice And do you think that clinical medicine is going to change as research continues? Clinical medicine always changes. I hope the placebo research contributes to positive changes in how we practice medicine. In terms of your first part of your question, what does this really speak to in terms of physicians in the trenches actually practicing? I think there's two levels of it. One level is just knowing that for some situations, for some conditions, for some complaints, the interaction between patient and physician is by itself 
quantifiably able to change those complaints is an amazing thing to know. It enhances the ability of physicians to see themselves as a therapy, as actually the physician as medicine. And I think that just knowing that's going to change things. I think there needs to be more research about exactly in what ways, what particular aspects of the patient-doctor relationship are critical in what order, what potentiates placebo responses more or less on average, because we know there's going to be a lot of idiosyncratic responses. That's just beginning to be done as research. But it's really clear that, I think it's really clear, or the evidence suggested to me, that attentiveness, knowing the name of the patient, knowing something about their background, elicits bonds and connections that potentiate the relief of symptoms that patients actually bring to their physician. Thank you, Professor Kaptrick.